Good morning. Thousands flee Nagorno-Karabakh as the Armenian-led government calls it quits. Russia says it's ready to negotiate. Biden blames MAGA. Fascism in America, slave burial grounds in New York, and a special report on the public housing crisis in Chelsea. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for the week ending Friday, September 29th, 2023. A mass exodus of ethnic Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh is visible from space as traffic jammed the only road between the former nation and Armenia. Since Sunday, nearly 80,000 people, two-thirds of the population, had left after a lightning strike by neighboring Azerbaijan toppled the regime's government earlier this month. The two countries have been at odds for 30 years, accusing each other of war crimes. Azerbaijan has promised no retaliation against the Armenian population, but decades of fighting have worn trust thin. And speaking to the United Nations General Assembly this week, Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says his country is willing to negotiate peace with Ukraine in the 18-month-long conflict that killed hundreds of thousands, according to the Pentagon. Speaking through an interpreter, as Antonio Guterres said at the press conference on the eve of this session, and I quote, if we want peace and prosperity based on equality and solidarity, then leaders have a particular responsibility to achieve compromise when designing our common future for our common good, end of quote. This is an excellent response to those who divide the world up into democracies democracies and autocracies and dictate their neocolonial rules to others. Thank you very much. Lavrov then headed to South Africa to meet with his counterpart. South Africa has strong trade relations with Russia and is a longtime ally. Lavrov is expected to meet with other African leaders on his trip. Meanwhile, in labor news. The Hollywood Writers' Strike is over. The five-month strike ended yesterday after the Screenwriters' Union approved a contract with the studios. A ratification vote by members is next, but the picket lines are down. Hollywood actors remain on strike, with actors voting to authorize expanding the walkout to put more pressure on studios. Among the issues is the use of artificial intelligence to copy the likeness of actors. And in more labor news, in a first, President Joe Biden used a bullhorn to urge striking auto workers to stick with it at a rally in Michigan. Wall Street didn't build the country. The middle class built the country. We built the middle class. That's a fact. So let's keep going. You deserve what you've earned, and you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're getting paid now. Thank you very much. When asked if UAW members deserved a 40% raise, which is one of their demands, Biden said, yes, I think they should be able to bargain for that. Meanwhile, the United Farm Workers endorsed Biden's re-election bid on Tuesday. Biden's campaign manager, Julie Chavez-Rodriguez, is the granddaughter of Cesar Chavez, the union's co-founder. And earlier this week, President Biden spoke with black lawmakers at the Phoenix Awards. He touted his mass pardon of pot smokers last year. And keeping my promise that no one, no one should be in jail merely for the use of possession of marijuana. God almighty. And those who are in jail are out. They're going to be released and their records are going to be expunged. Biden overstated the impact of his pardon. It only affects about 6,500 people who committed federal pot offenses. Another 2,800 cannabis prisoners are untouched by the pardon, including people charged with selling weed. In related news, a lawyer for New York's budding cannabis stores tells the West Side Spirit there are 8,000 unlicensed pot shops in the city. 
2,000 in Manhattan alone. Attorney Paul Collins says he figures there are more than 36,000 unlicensed dispensaries operating in New York State. And in international news, in his speech to the United Nations General Assembly last week, Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said the West was dishonest in its support of Ukraine. The West is one that is truly an empire of lies. Lavrov's statement comes as cracks have been appearing in Europe's support of the war in Ukraine. Poland has banned Ukrainian wheat exports, saying its neighbors have been dumping grain on Poland's market. And in national news, another prominent Democrat has come out calling for New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to resign after his indictment on bribery charges. Fellow Senator John Fetterman compared Menendez to fictional mobster Tony Soprano. A police search of the Menendez home uncovered more than $100,000 in gold bars and thousands more in cash. Reminiscent of the cash the Sopranos boss kept in his New Jersey residence. Menendez has been unsuccessfully prosecuted twice previously for similar crimes. This week, the Democrat came out swinging. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now, this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. I look forward to addressing other issues at trial. Menendez was forced to resign from his job as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, but says he has no plans to leave the Senate. In local news, in a scene reminiscent of the dystopian film RoboCop, Mayor Eric Adams introduced the newest member of the NYPD, a robot with the name K-5, the first electric cop in New York City history. Today, we're launching a pilot program to test the Nightscope K-5 security robot. The NYPD must be on the forefront of technology and be two steps ahead of those utilizing technology to hurt uh, New Yorkers. The new addition to the force comes as crime is down in the city after historic highs following the COVID-19 pandemic. Transit Chief Michael Kemper. For example, crime is down 8.1% versus 2019. Crime is down 8.9% versus 2018. And when taking out the pandemic years of 2020, and 2021, for obvious reasons, only two years in recorded history have lower overall crime numbers in the subway system versus calendar year 2023. The new robot will patrol at speed powered by artificial intelligence. As reported earlier, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is defiant in the face of federal bribery charges. He denies wrongdoing and denies he secretly helped Egypt. Meanwhile, the new chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is Maryland Democrat Ben Cardin. His reign will be short because his term expires in 2025 and he's not running for re-election. Cardin calls his new job a pinch-me moment. In related news, Egyptian authorities arrested 73 volunteers for a challenger to incumbent President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi in the December election. They face a variety of charges. LCC has been running a country infamous for its treatment of dissidents. In 2015, 230 defendants were tried in absentia and sentenced to life in prison. Egypt is a close ally of the United States and receives billions of military aid every year. A professor of political science at the University of San Francisco, Stephen Zunis, says even without the bribery charges, Senator Menendez should resign. They found $480,000 in cash 
and a number of gold bars worth at least 150,000 each. There, and then there's a Mercedes Benz, Mercedes Benz that he received as well. Uh, there could be even more stuff that they just haven't discovered. So we are actually talking about a, a fair amount of uh, money uh, compared to a Senate salary. The guy's definitely a crook. He got off from previous indictments due to a hung jury leading to a mistrial. The guy's bad news all around. It's particularly upsetting that he's getting these bribes from a brutal authoritarian government that receives over $1.3 billion of military aid from the American taxpayer every year. And this is the third highest of any country. Only Ukraine and Israel get more foreign aid than Egypt does. Egypt is a country that has massacred thousands of protesters under the Sisi regime. It has over 60,000 political prisoners, the overwhelming majority of whom are nonviolent, including some of the young secular leaders who led the uh, pro-democracy revolution against Mubarak back in uh, 2011. He has been steering favors, align items, and various other budgets to help out uh, favored uh, Egyptian officials, but also to the steer aid package uh, through a reluctant Senate every year. I mean, there's been bipartisan concerns raised about the uh, human rights abuses by the regime, but Menendez, backed by Biden and by Trump, and to some extent by Obama as well, have insisted on getting through this aid anyway. There's a lot to unpack there. He's obviously has a high position as the uh, chair of the uh, foreign affairs committee and had a tremendous amount of power and you can't imagine since he was indicted twice before they didn't have some idea what was going on so uh what is the benefit for the united states to have a guy like this in that job for so many years very little it hurts u.s credibility of course uh, but also hurts the democrats credibility and here we have all these corrupt republicans i mean trump in particular and uh, and here the democrats unknowingly put somebody with this corrupt history in such a powerful position. And lo and behold, to not the surprise of many observers, he is indicted again. On one hand, though, I guess you could get credit the Democrats for not insisting that the system is rigged and he's innocent and, you know, all the kind of defensive stuff that Trump people are saying. But at the same time, it really does look pretty bad. But the bad, even without the corruption, I think Mendez was a very poor choice to head the um, Foreign Relations Committee. He opposed the Iran nuclear agreement. He's repeatedly attacked the United Nations, the International Court of Justice. He's attacked Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and other groups. He supported unconditional uh, military aid to not just the Egyptian regime, but he supported armed transfers to the Saudis, the Bahrainis, Emiratis, and and others that have engaged in terrible repression. At the same time, he says Cuba is this totalitarian state and condemned Obama for um, trying to normalize the relations. And he also tried to undermine Obama on issues of international law. He sided with Trump against Obama on the question of Israeli settlements. He even said the United Nations should have nothing to do with issues of international humanitarian law in uh, territories under occupation. He attacked Bush from the right when Bush criticized the Israelis using death squads against uh, suspected uh, Palestinian dissidents in the occupied territory, saying that the assassination policies was legitimate self-defense. And the guy is, is well to the right of the vast majority of Democrats and even Republicans. And if you look at the history of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, they've often been checks on hawkish presidencies. You think of J. William Fulbright, you know, back in the 60s on Vietnam. You think of Claiborne Pell. You think of Frank Church. Under Menendez, it's just the opposite. They've brought in somebody who is 
well to the right of even more mainstream Democrats like Biden and Obama, and times to the right even of presidents like Bush. He said, I'm being silenced, as if he was representing some people's politics that were being silenced by evil forces within the government. What did he mean by I'm being silenced? What are they silencing him? <laughs> well, I guess the silence from the right to continue pursuing his policies despite all these uh, criminal activities. It, it seems like it's a pretty desperate kind of line, and he's hoping that Democrats will come to his defense. The governor of New Jersey and some other New Jersey Democratic officials have called on him to resign. The Biden administration, by contrast, have refused comment, just saying it's an ongoing legal matter. Your listeners, especially in the tri-state area, are probably quite familiar with this, uh, an endemic corruption we've seen in New Jersey politics over the years. Menendez is product this kind of, of corruption. Stephen Zunas is professor of political science at the University of San Francisco. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. President Joe Biden chose an event honoring the late Republican Senator John McCain of Arizona to launch a wide-ranging attack on Donald Trump, his likely opponent. Biden warned that Trump's MAGA movement is a threat to democracy. Did you ever think we'd be having debates in your stage of your careers where banning books, banning books and burying history? Extremists in Congress more determined to shut down the government, to burn the place down, than to let the people's business be done. McCain was a thorn in Trump's side during the 2016 election. Trump denounced McCain, a fighter pilot in Vietnam POW, as not a war hero. Biden also mentioned a recent threat by Trump, a call for the execution of Joint Chiefs Chair General Mark Milley. Biden also reminded the audience of Trump's refusal to visit a World War II cemetery in France because Trump said the dead GIs were suckers and losers. Although U.S. politicians are often slurred or slur others as fascists, meaning followers of the former government in Nazi Germany or Benito Mussolini's Italy, the issue is rarely taken up seriously, that is, until Donald Trump was elected president. In a recent book, Fascism in America, editors Gabriel Rosenfeld, head of the Center for Jewish History, and Janet War, an expert in German history, collect essays on the history of American fascism, both past and present. Gabriel Roosevelt spoke with the news. Every single American president since FDR has been attacked as a fascist by their opponents. doesn't matter whether they were a Democrat or Republican. And there are recent scholars, uh, Bruce Kuklick being one of them, who has pointed out that you know fascism as a slur, as a, as a term of attack, has been employed for decades in this country. And it, in a way, has dulled our sensitivities to the possibility that there actually might truly be fascism. Uh, in our midst, because, you know, like crying wolf, an over, any term that's overused can desensitize people. Since Trump's election in 2016, there's been a very big debate, some scholars call it the fascism debate, about whether what the United States is facing now is or isn't fascism, and what our book is trying to contribute to is some greater clarity where we stand as a country at this pivotal moment. So tell us about the book. It's a collection. You've edited it. Who are some of the writers, and what are the issues that you cover? My co-editor and I, Janet Ward, she's the past president, immediate past president of the German Studies Association, which is the largest international body for German scholars in North America and Europe. And we came to this topic from the perspective of scholars who have been working on the history of Nazism, the history of the Holocaust, 
we were, of course, predisposed to being, for years and years, alert to right-wing trends going on in Germany. But Germany became, once and for all, as stable politically, as prosperous economically as it's ever been. The fears that a Fourth Reich might return to Germany subsided. None of us in the field of German studies in the U.S. felt that we were going to have to take our skill set and apply it to internal domestic trends in the U.S. And that's, of course, what not only Jan and I did, but countless others. Already several years ago at a major conference and in some subsequent conferences, we gathered a whole bunch of really prominent scholars, both senior and junior, to weigh in on this question of whether the German experience can help us understand the American experience. And, you know, like any good comparison, you have to have, you have to see similarities and differences. You have to compare and contrast. But I do think that what it has done is alert people to the fact that even though we, the United States, defeated Nazi Germany in World War II, and ever since, of course, we've understood World War II as the good war, and we've celebrated the greatest generation, and we know the film Saving Private Ryan, and we know that we stand opposed to Nazism, well, <laughs> behind the scenes, there were countless Americans, certainly in the 30s and 40s, who felt otherwise, and that's what we're starting to shed some light on, uh, building on the efforts of other scholars in the last generation to try and bring this narrative forward. There's that video clip, you can see it on YouTube, and I've seen it on television, the uh, Bund having their huge event in Madison Square Garden, and then a protester jumps up on the stage and decks the president of the Bund. Yeah. I mean, do you see that kind of uh, stress in American culture and politics now? Of course, very committed anti-fascists, whether they were liberals, whether they were leftists, whether they were union members, whether they were the inhabitants of ethnic neighborhoods in the U.S. and big cities. They took a very strong stance against some of the right-wing tendencies that were going on. And, of course, the German-American Bund is the most recognized because they were the most clearly connected to the Nazi regime in Germany itself. There were other fascist organizations like the Christian Front, associated with Father Coughlin. There was the Silver Shirts, Ku Klux Klan, continued to use vigilante violence against many, many victims, predominantly African-Americans, but also white Catholics and Jewish Americans as well. This was part of a domestic outgrowth of right-wing sentiment that dates really back to the 19th century. Some people call it nativism, but whether and how that nativist tradition in American life, oftentimes expressed in the form of anti-immigrant sentiment, whether that and how that evolved into fascism in the 1930s, that's sort of an underreported story in creating this volume. And of course, we're not claiming that it's the final word on the subject. We're just trying to build on the existing scholarship and stimulate further scholarship. Many Americans did become committed to right-wing extremism in the 30s, and then other Americans stood against that and remained committed to liberal democratic values. Is it still fascism, still primarily an anti-Semitic thing? Do you feel that they could switch it to the target of opportunity of the time, the minority of the time? The first fascist movement in world history in Italy was not anti-Semitic from the get-go. In fact, Italian Jews were part of the fascist party and were not excluded, largely because the Jewish community of Italy was so tiny that they were not seen as part of the, the problem. It was fascism from the get-go was much more an anti-communist, anti-Marxist movement, and so people on the left were, were targeted. It's true also in American history that nativist movements have chosen selectively who their targets for scapegoating are depending on where they live. In the cities, nativists and even the Klan, they were much more anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic than the Klan was in the South, where, of course, it was primarily anti-black. 
the larger common dynamic, I suppose, is that in periods of economic or social crisis, or at least in time periods when dominant social groups feel like their status is threatened and they're afraid of downward mobility, the sphere that oftentimes drives this, they'll, they'll lash out and target some other group for scapegoating in order to prop themselves up. Unfortunately, as we know in the case of Trump, it oftentimes attracts opportunists and hucksters and grifters who can make a ton of money. Gabriel Rosenfeld, head of the Center for Jewish History, is co-editor with Janet War of Fascism in America. Fascism has often denied an easy definition. Historian Robert O. Paxton says to be a fascist is to hate even the mildest leftism and tolerate lawless treatment of people designated as enemies of the state. And you're listening to the news. I'm Paul DiRienzo in New York. In local news, New York may be in the middle of a cold snap, but the air was hot at a community meeting on the future of the Fulton and Elliott Chelsea houses on Wednesday. City Housing Authority, or NYCHA, dropped a plan to spend $1.5 billion to demolish and rebuild the complex using private developers. Three-quarters of the new units would be rented at market rate. The demolition is part of a program initiated by the federal government known as RAD Pact. That's already converted tens of thousands of NYCHA units financed under Section 9, that's government-run public housing, into Section 8, privately run but government-subsidized housing. Opposition was sparked when NYCHA announced a resident survey last spring. Tenants say the vote was rigged. The Legal Aid Society and Community Service Society also announced the advisory vote, saying it was in violation of principles and misleading. NYCHA says a majority of the tenants who voted were in favor of the demolition plan for the housing projects. A tenant opposing the conversion says it's government overreach. This is a land grab. That's all it is. It's a land grab. When Hudson Gill came in, when Hudson Yacht came in, they saw this neighborhood, they said, this is prime for luxury housing. That's why they want to get rid of you. They want to build luxury housing. What I say is, if they say there's no other way but to give you a building, then at least you should own the damn building and not be subjected to Section 8. Section 8 is not guaranteed. This is what they call bait and switch. They, you, guys, you guys were promised something, they sold you out. Thank you. But despite the strong opposition, there are some supporters of the plan. They say it's the only way to fix the units long neglected by NYCHA. We don't know what's behind the doors. I can understand that you guys want this, um, you want just them to put a band-aid on your apartment, but that's not going to help us. 
It's not. But other tenants say NYCHA is hiding something. They're demanding the release of the resident survey results. They've been withheld by NYCHA since the vote was carried out last spring. We want to see how each development voted and see if the votes of the elderly and the Spanish and the Mandarin speakers conflict with what they actually want. We also know that some of the votes have been influenced by HOU workers. If CHPC is in fact a neutral third party, they should have no problem releasing the results of the votes to us. I'm against demolition for several reasons. One, we did not have the proper um, information and things that was needed for us. We do not understand how the vote was taken and the, the way the vote was given to us was just to re, not to rebuild. No one said anything about demolition. They just said other things, used other words. A lot of people do not understand the way things are. There's people with disabilities. There's invisible disabilities. There's a lot of things that impact people that you need to give information properly. And we was misinformed, and we still don't know how the vote was calculated. Tempers flared as the meeting progressed. One tenant activist was forcibly ejected by police. He went limp and had to be carried by bemused cops. In related news, many NYCHA tenants joined housing advocates at an oversight hearing by the New York City Council last week. The council wants to know why the housing authority needs billions of dollars more to make repairs of its 335 public housing developments with 360,000 tenants. NYCHA claims its recent physical needs assessment, a PNA as it's called, discovered more than $78 billion for repairs are needed, up from $45 billion in 2017. A tenant leader, Alexa Torres, says the government has it in for public housing tenants. I live in Alfred E. Smith houses and I'm the resident association president. So what, what I've been trying to get, it, is this a, a battle, a classic battle in New York City between the rich and the poor going on no. here? No. No. Um, it's, it's a battle between government and the poor. And um, we're trying to get the money to fix up our apartments that are going downhill, you know, and um, they are not releasing the money to fix it. And they're taking years it's to do a little it's bit. It's not the government, it's NYCHA that's not really. They are part of the government. N no, NYCHA's an authority. Say your name. Deidre Lamont. And do you live in NYCHA housing? Yes, I do. I was born there. In the Smith Alfred houses. E. Smith We went to houses. school together. <laughs> yes, and I'm a, a Vietnam era veteran. Why doesn't NYCHA want to spend the money it does have to fix up the apartments and then there's reports that we're 40 billion in the hole and there's no way we can fix because, anything? Because, because they want to deteriorate our apartments to the point where they can demolish them. Yes, and go to the preservation trust and we don't want that. What is the Preservation Trust? Um, it's these uh, people that, or uh, corporations that want to take over the apartment saying that they will fix them up. But they take it over and then the rent is too high and, it, and NYCHA doesn't own them anymore. And th therefore we're trying to stop that. Why are you here today? To take NYCHA's masks off, talk about how we do have money sometimes to repair things, and it doesn't get done. 
you know, the, some of the elected officials, they have the right to put what they call construction, you know, for construction work. And the money just sits there and sits there and nothing ever gets done. Or the money disappears. What happens when you put a ticket for an order, like a leaky faucet or a ceiling collapse or something like that? What you, happens? You're talking to the residents that took NYCHA to court to get our HPD. We did an HPD class action suit and one, and yeah, then they came and fixed our apartments. So residents have to stand up, they have to protest, and they have to follow up. We have to assume a responsibility and we have to be part of the solution. And so when elected officials want our votes, they come, right? And so we now need to begin to hold our elected officials accountable. So you had to go to HPD like a, like a rental, like a rental and no, a no, tenement. No, we went to housing court. Right, like a rental. Right, exactly. Against the government. Exa exactly. That's unusual. You shouldn't have to do that. You're expecting that when you file a paper, they'll come and fix it, aren't they supposed to do that, right? Yeah, that's what they're supposed to so do. So you're that. saying they're worse than or New York? Oh, please. They're the, amongst the worst landlords in New York. Yeah. It, it's part of the problem with NYCHA is that NYCHA is being run by people that don't care, never lived in public housing. Once upon a time, the resident, the residents in public housing lived, were, were at, even the hierarchy at one point were residents in public housing. And so there was a caring to the point that NYCHA actually had a reserve. They had like in the billions of dollars, you could Google it. Uh -huh. And the money disappeared. And the money, thanks to Giuliani. Really? Yeah, in the billions, not in the millions, in the billions. And why do you think Giuliani were to go? Oh, he outsourced everything and he destroyed NYCHA, literally destroyed NYCHA. City Council member Christopher Marty echoed other members who say even when repairs are funded, NYCHA refuses to do the work. So we're here to make sure to find out where the money is going. It's crazy. Two years ago, I got $2.7 million for Sewer Park Annex in my district. And, this, and NYCHA said, sorry, we can't use the money because we're on pause. The same agency that time and time again ask us for money. When we deliver, they say we can't use it. And so we're here to get the answers, get the responses, to make sure that we can do the repairs that are needed, to fix the playgrounds so kids can enjoy themselves and make sure that we have a livable community. Thank you. Public housing for us, not the illegals. For us. So, Chris Monte. Attorney Anna Luff with the New York Legal Action Group says the physical needs assessment is just a tool to control tenants. Every day in housing court, NYCHA attorneys point to the PNA as an excuse for why they won't do repairs at our clients' apartments even when those repairs are as simple as putting in a sink or patching a wall so there's no exposed wiring. And I know for all of us at NILAG and for all of you here today, that is absolutely not okay. So we are here today to demand that NYCHA meet its immediate obligations to its residents while simultaneously seeking additional funding no exceptions. As it stands, the current privatization plans would cede NYCHA residents' rights and undermine their community's stability. So we demand another way, a better way. The city must fill the funding gap 
without jeopardizing community's ability to stay intact or giving developers any incentives to tear down and displace entire developments. Tenants claim Section 9, the federal law behind public housing, is at stake. They say Section 8, city vouchers can be revoked and subsidies cut without notice. Public housing, so say it again. Say Section 9! Say Section 9! Say Section 9! Say Section 9! And finally, Throughout hundreds of years of slavery in the United States, untold numbers of black people were buried in segregated and unconsecrated burial grounds throughout the country and in New York City. Historical research shows much larger numbers of black people were kept as slaves in New York City than previously believed, 1,800 slaves in a population of 10,000 in 1741 alone. 33% of New York's workforce were slaves at the time, and 20% of New Yorkers were slave owners, including some of the best-known names from the city's past, like Stuyvesant, Willits, and Dykeman. New York didn't free all its slaves until 1827, and the vote wasn't guaranteed to black people until well after the Civil War. A group of students and teachers at PS48, an elementary school in Hunts Point, discovered a hidden slave burial ground at Joseph Rodman Drake Park that the city had allowed to be forgotten. Using ground-penetrating radar provided by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the students, led by teacher Justin Zarka, found numerous unmarked graves in the park, presumed to be the slaves of the wealthy landowners who settled the point in the 17th century. Professor of History Adam Aronson at Manhattan College has been studying the history of slavery in New York. He says it's time for schools to teach the truth. It's important for people to understand how slavery was really in all of the parts of what's now the United States. People think of it as just something in the U.S. South, but New York was very much a place where people were enslaved, Native people, African-American people. And because New York was a booming center of trade, that means it was connected through all of these networks that were linked to slave labor. So that was slave labor in the Caribbean, that was slave labor in the U.S. South, but it was also slave labor here in New York to have provisions that would go out into the slave trade or it was to show how elite life was. It was to have a fancy house where somebody else was doing the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry and the serving. People in New York held those same standards as people would in Charleston or Richmond or somewhere else, and they wanted to show that power by enslaving others and having them work for them without pay. Is there a year when this all began in New York City, what we now call New York City would have been then, I guess, New Amsterdam? People talk about 1619 is when the first Africans were enslaved in Virginia, but that's really part of a story that goes all the way back to the 1490s, that Columbus had brought some enslaved Africans to the Dominican Republic. When they reach North America, that's really later in the story. When it comes to what's now Manhattan, the first resident from across the Atlantic was actually a man named Jan Rodriguez, who was of mixed background. He was born in the Dominican Republic. He had an African mother. He was left by the Dutch on the island to learn the Lenape language in 1624. He's really the first non-native resident of New York, this man who was understood to come from an African lineage. And only then does he help the Dutch understand what the Lenape want, and they get established with first New Amsterdam, and then the British take over and it becomes New York. Why is there so little known today, and especially this era where you have... Uh incidents where uh, state whole states like Florida are banning the teaching of this kind of thing. Why in New York? People wanted to forget. 
that they look at the Civil War era and they see that New York is part of the North and the North is who ended slavery in the South and they wanted to be proud of that history. It's a lot more complicated when you have to think about the reality of slavery in the North, when you have to think about ongoing racial discrimination and redlining after the Civil War. It's a much more complex story that does reach right up to the present. People like the idea that this is something that happened somewhere else that New Yorkers were the people who ended slavery, not people who profited from slavery. Is this a little negative even for young people? Accurate history can be told at every age. We can think about what stories to emphasize, but I want us to think about the things that have created the problems that we still deal with, whether that has to do with race, whether that has to do with energy consumption. The problems that we live with have a history, and it's important to engage that even with young kids. Museums and schools are doing better at telling a wider history, including elements of this history of slavery in New York. And I think we can take people to historic places all through the city where this history is something you can see and you can feel, and people can try to figure out how best to understand that in relation to the stories they've been told that might have been to make people prouder of certain occasions. What is it about these slave burial grounds that is attracting so much attention? What was it about the way that slaves and black people, even free black people, were buried. That makes it so interesting to discover these places. When cities change, people have a relationship with cemeteries where they think, like, this is a place where people are buried, um, where their remains are going to be forever, and they want to be remembered, and they want people who've died to be remembered. When people go back and look at old maps, and they see, oh, look, this is a development that's been built over a cemetery. Here's a road or a parking lot where there used to be a cemetery. They feel called to action whether that's the African burial ground in Lower Manhattan or the burial grounds we now know are in Drake Park and Hunts Point or in Van Cortland Park or lots of other places throughout the city and the country. It's important for us to tell that history and to do what we can to memorialize and honor the people who are buried there. Why are there African or slave burial grounds? People wanted to memorialize their own family and their own friends in one way. And if there were other people in their community who had less money or maybe were different in terms of race or religion, they weren't always included right in the same space, but they still needed a place to be buried. We see segregation that happens because of religion or race in burial sites. And some of those sites were memorialized and given big stones and others were marked in a less expensive way that might have faded over time. And so now we can rediscover that by looking back at the maps and looking back at old newspapers, we can recover the history of what's been lost. How many slave burial grounds are there to be found? It's really hard to know exactly how many are out there, but lots of old properties had small family burial grounds. And sometimes if those were places where people were enslaved, there are burial grounds of the enslaved there as well. It's important as we tell stories of founding families or of historic houses to think about who was doing the labor, what laws were making it so that some people would profit from others. And that we include slavery as part of the story because it was part of the live reality of New York. Adam Aronson is professor of history at Manhattan College in the Bronx. And that's the news for the week ending September 29, 2023. The news was produced by this reporter. For more news, go to pauldurienzo.wordpress.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.